All right, welcome to another episode of uh, Tripeza. And this week, I mean, last time we was in Cyprus together. Yep. Now we're in sunny Essex together. Yeah, and it is sunny. It is I'm sunny. very pleased. Yeah. I've only just come back to the UK Friday, and I've been welcomed by a beautiful sunshine. It's amazing. <laughs> and I've got to say, Pezza, you've got a lovely tan. Cheers, mate. Yeah. A lovely tan. Because when I was in Cyprus, all, all we, I, Although I've got a few white marks going on there. You had, you know? yeah. yeah. T- the, t- the typical cycling t shirt. Yeah. Pull, pull your pants back. I'm going <laughs> to see that. <laughs> but no, yeah, mate, I'm back in the UK, but back on it. You know, I was um, coaching Sh- young Sinead uh, this morning. Um, so yeah, it's just business as usual, just in a different country. So what's what's happening now? Now you're back over here, Perry. What we got to come? Well, um, I mean, crikey, I've got, I've literally got about seven athletes racing this weekend. Um, it's all systems go now and you know the, the season's fast races are far, like, fast approaching now for everybody and there ain't a lot of respite to be honest now so it's literally now everyone's got to roll their sleeves up and put the good winter training into into action I suppose really the most important race coming up is uh, 9th of June uh, which is coming up very soon which is my South End half marathon <laughs> <laughs> you had to get that one in I love it mate like I keep trying to tell everybody you you are the elitist athlete that I actually have <laughs> I, got, I got a few comments about um, the last podcast did you? good yeah I did get a few comments about that so who's this Mark Fountain bloke you yeah. know you're training and stuff like that yeah because yeah. you, you you actually said it was uh, your elite athletes your age groupers and, and you yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't know what category that puts me in. But a lot of people, you know, they they, they took to that very well. Yeah. But um, but listen, mate, we, we've got a, we're, in my opinion, we've got a very special guest um, on today's uh, uh, podcast. Yeah, um, I, I I agree. I think this guy is a true inspiration to all naughty kids out there. That there yeah. is light at the end of the tunnel, and there are ways yeah. to turn your life around. Yeah, and the thing is, I met this guy. Back in 2016, I think it was, and I was introduced to him, you know, just as a, just as an athlete. I met him out. I think it was Staffordshire 70.3. Oh man, 70.3. By one of my athletes, lovely guy. I didn't have a clue about his past until it, you know, it really kind of come to tuition, and he uh, spoke to me about it. But it's for me, I think what an inspirational story. And the the work that this guy's gone on to do is absolutely phenomenal, and I think everyone should get beyond what he's doing. Well, I think definitely uh, that couldn't have been a better introduction to Mr. John McAvoy. How's it going, mate? I'm good, thanks, mate. How are you? Yeah, yeah, we're very well. We're very well down in sunny Essex, enjoying the <laughs> enjoying the nice sunshine this <laughs> evening. That's that's probably the best introduction I've ever had. Is it really, Thank you guys? Yeah, it is. Thank you. It's very humbling to hear that, Perry. I, um, I've got a tremendous amount of respect for you, and to hear those words from you, mate, that actually really does mean a lot. Thank you, mate. No drama. No drama. So, so John, from from the beginning, so, you know, there, there'll be people out there that that haven't heard of you. There'll be people out there that that don't know your story. So, from the very beginning. How 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 was your upbringing? How how was your childhood, John? What what was so I, I, I probably have to start from actually before I was born, <laughs> um, because when when my 
my mum was eight months pregnant with me. No, it's just like, because people sometimes, I have to sort of go through the chronological side of everything, because like, when, before before I was born, my mum my was eight months pregnant with me, my actual real dad died. Um, he had a he went to bed one night next to my mum, and uh, he had a massive heart attack, and he was undiagnosed, he had a bad heart, and he, he passed away next to my mum in bed. Um, so when I was born, um, like, I didn't, didn't have a dad. Um, mm. And I thought it was quite normal to not have a dad. Like, yeah. my mum and my, um, my sister brought me up. And we grew up in South London, um, Crystal Palace. And and sort of, I remember I was I was really well loved. I was, I was brought up well by my mum and my sister. And, and I started going to primary school and, and, I, and I was really happy and content. Um, and then when I went to primary school, as I got a little bit older, about like six or seven, um, I remember obviously then kids sort of... <laughs> People were having an awareness of, like, where's your dad? And, yeah. and I remember kids used to tease me about not having a dad. And I asked my mum where my dad was, and my mum explained to me that my dad had died. So from a young age, I had this sort of um, comprehension of, of death. And my mum explains to me that you die. And then when my mum sort of explained that to me, even being a little kid, like, I did understand that one day I wouldn't be alive anymore. Yeah. Um, and and my mum used to take me out. Like, I, I developed this, like, history of, like, I, was just like, I developed this fascination with history. And my mum used to take me to like museums and the Tower of London, and and she used to buy me these like magazines at the newsagents. They were called Discovery booklets, and every month it would be about a different part of history. And I remember sitting in our flat, Crystal Palace Park Road, and I was putting all these puzzles together. These booklets. It was about Napoleon and the Second World War. And I remember like these people were all dead, but yeah. I was I was sitting in this flat, Crystal Palace Park Road, reading about these people that died hundreds of years ago. And and they had done something like people remembered them, and and even though I was too young to understand legacy, that's what they left behind. Like people remember them, and 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 that that sparked something in me where like I wanted to do something when I was older, um, and I wanted to be remembered. I wanted to achieve something with my life when 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 I was when I was like sort of a, a man, and um, and. And it's sort of as you grow up a little bit more and you develop and you sort of like your interests sort of kept shaping. I uh, I developed this sort of obsession with British Telecom. And, and I remember watching the adverts on telly. And when my mum used to take me around to my aunties and uncles' houses, like, I used to run around all the different rooms. And they all like, at that time, everyone had like a BT landline in, in, their, in their house. Like you had the, the, the phone. Yeah. And every, every street corner was a BT phone box. And I said to my uncle Tony one day, I said, how much money does British telecom make and he said they make billions and from that moment he sparked something off in my head and it was like when I'm older I'm going to own British Telecom and no matter when anyone said to me what do you want to do when you get older I want to own British Telecom I want to own BT so even from a little kid I was so ambitious and so driven that I wanted to achieve something in my life when I got older and really one of the most or moments in my young life was, was when I was eight years old um this man came into our lives and he was, he was my mum's ex-husband and um, he didn't come back into my mum's life for a relationship but he came into my mum's life to see my sister which was my stepsister yeah. and my first sort of interaction with this man was that he came into our flat Crystal Palace Park Road um, he was immaculately dressed big gold watch uh, he asked me to go and make him a cup of tea and I did it and when he left he gave me a £20 note pat me on the head and said you're a good boy and he was the first adult to ever give me paper money and uh, and when he left, I asked my mum who he was. My mum explained to me that was her ex-husband. Um, they got married when they were young, when they were 16. They were both Irish Catholics in South London. My mum fell pregnant with my sister when she was 18. 
And um, my mum never really explained nothing more, but I was just in awe of this man. I was literally in awe of him. And he, he started taking my sister out on the weekends. And... <clears throat> And he was taking out with them. And he didn't have a son. I didn't have a dad. And it was a perfect storm. Um, he then started taking me out without my sister. And he started bringing me up like I was his son. Um, and it was only when I was 12 years old that my granddad passed away. And I found all these newspaper clippings in my granddad's flat in his envelope. And it transpired that that man was one of the most prolific armed robbers in the United Kingdom. He had five acquittals at the Old Bailey. Um, he'd been shot by the police two times. Uh, he was a multi-millionaire who was 21 years old he never used to stop telling me about and um, and then I thought I could connect up the dots because like when he was taking him out in all these big fancy cars and he was talking about having apartments in Paris and he lived on Shad Thames near Tower Bridge and he had clothes and money I started connecting up the dots well obviously that's where all that money was coming from mm. and he was taking me out of all these older men that Again, they weren't very academically clever, but they were all incredibly wealthy in their big houses. Everything was about um, money. And I connected up the dots. So obviously, all these guys were involved in sort of organised crime. They was involved in drug trafficking and, and armed robbery. And, John, and what, what sort of age was you at, at this sort of time? So I, I, was, I was around 12, 13 years old at this point. Yeah. Um, and, that, and, and, and again, like, I, I always say that, uh, like... The, the way I am today, I've always been that way. And what then ended up happening, these characteristics that I had, like the drive, the will to win, the wanting to be successful, the wanting to achieve something in my life, these other men were like this, that they were the same. Um, and they channeled all that into into making money through through any, any means possible. Mm-hmm. Um, so that whole lifestyle was so normalised to me that when that happened, I saw people that like, went to work as being quite abnormal. And, and, I, and, and I'll give you an example of it. One day, um, we were in Kent, and we were driving down this high street, and um, my stepdad, Billy, had this Porsche 911, and it was there was only 200 of them in this country. It was, like, super chipped up. And, and I remember I was sitting in the passenger seat of the car, and there was people walking around with shopping bags, and he said, look out the window. And I said, what? And he went, look out the window, all these people. And he said, they're like sheep. He went, like, every day they get up, they go to work, they pay tax. It's a corrupt system. And he went, he went, they take from them and we take from them, meaning the, the system, the government, banks. Um, and that was a very profound moment in my young life because then when that happened, I, I saw the system as my enemy. Yeah. Um, and then I, I started going to school. Um, and at this point, like I said, when I, I used to love history, my mum used to take me to museums and the Tower of London when I was a kid. And I did, I've always, like, I love learning, I love geography at school. And then what ended up happening, my teachers become my authority. And then I become really disrespectful to them because I started to thinking, well, getting an A in English or maths isn't going to want to, isn't going to get me what I want in life. Um, that, these men over here, they've shown me the path. Like, my mum was working as a florist, earning, like, minimum wage, and all these guys over here are multi-millionaires committing crime. And then suddenly, again, as a young man, like, my mum's telling me, like, that's the bad road to go down, and I'm looking at my mum, and then I'm looking at these. There was a path for me to walk down to get that money that I wanted when I was um, when I was older, which I believed at that moment would define me as being successful or not. So for, like, a 12, 13-year-old boy to be quite heavily influenced by someone like that, I mean, that, it's just a method for disaster, really, isn't it? Yeah, like, again, like, it's quite funny because I've... I've had this conversation recently. I, I, I did this event recently with politicians, and um, it was actually it was the Conservative Party conference. and And I remember I, I gave this speech, and at the end, 
some of these aides were coming up to me from the politicians and, and they were in disbelief. And they went, I can't believe you spent that many years of your life locked in prison. I can't believe you did that stuff years ago, how you are today. And I said, but I've always been like that. And, and that's what happens. Um, I believe everyone, like a lot of the problems that have been happening at the moment in London and all these problems with, with young people, I've always had the skills, but the skills can be misdirected into something very negative and become very toxic. And they can be very detrimental to your life if they're not used in the right way. And so the way I am, like I said, I've always been that way. But because of the mentors and the role models that I had in my life, they directed all those skills. Or they showed me they showed me a path that with those with those attributes that I had become actually destroying my life, which mm-hmm. they did. And then when I realised I could redirect them into something positive, they become <clears throat> massive attributes in my life and allowed me to do what I'm doing today. Mm-hmm. Jesus, I mean, what? Like, that, that's that's quite a that's, that's quite a childhood, isn't it? Yeah, it, it, but, but you know what, mate? It was very normal. It was like I, I know, I know, like all my like when I was growing up as a kid, like my cousins and every all the young people that I was exposed to, like that was normal to me. To so, like, I, I, and I always understand it from perspective. Like today, looking back on it, how abnormal it seems as the person I am today. But when you're in that environment, you're living it. That's actually normality. Like, it was normal not to talk in cars. It was normal not to talk in your house. It was normal, like, those, those things to me growing up, that was that was part of normal life. Like, yeah. it wasn't something, if you ever get a battle register and never get in bank accounts in your name. Like, these things that I did years ago come back to hamper me years, years later because I didn't exist. Because it was like, take yourself, never claim any sort of benefits, never, yeah. ne- ne- never enter into that system. So they don't know you exist. So it makes it harder for them to detect you. So where did it go catastrophically wrong for you? Um, well, I got arrested when I was 18 for conspiracy to commit robbery. Um, and I got five years in prison. Mm-hmm. And, um, like, uh, it's hard for me to sort of converse it into words, my hatred towards the system. So when I went to prison, the system was very real. And, like, a prison officer, this uh, representation of the system was a man that was mm-hmm. locking me behind a metal door. Um, and so when I was in there, I, I was as difficult as I possibly could because I had no respect for them. I didn't have any respect for the system whatsoever. Um, so I ended up going into prison. And, and when I was in there when I was 18, I ended up spending a year of that locked in a segregation unit um, where I was locked up for 24 hours a day in a, in a tiny little cell. And, and, and I, had to make, I had to find ways of coping with that. So what, I mean, what, what do you do to pass the time for 24 hours? So I, I would get up, well, at the beginning, so when I went in there, I made the decision I wasn't going to be institutionalised, so I made sure that I educated myself and I read books and, and I read every day. And then I, I never done any sport as a kid whatsoever, no interest in sport when I was a kid. Um, but when I was in this cell, um, someone once said to me, when you go to prison, you don't live, you just exist. And I need to feel alive. So I was overweight as a kid, I was chubby, even when I was a teenager. And I started doing these cell circuits that made me feel like I was a human, made me feel like I was alive. And actually, to be honest with you, mate, it was actually gaining control of me. Me probably being quite defiant in why I was doing it, because it was like I had control of my own body. And and when I say that, I literally did not leave that room for for 24 hours a day for a whole year, like not once. I used to wash myself in the sink in the the cell, and and then I'd, I'd read books every day. And then I would get up, and, and as I got fitter, and I didn't six-pack, I did it, because it just made me feel alive in that little wearer space. And I would do a 1,000 burpees, a 1,000 step-ups, a 1,000 press-ups, a 1,000 squats, 1,000 sit-ups. 
and then that 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 circuit in particular would take me like ninety minutes to two hours every day, um, and it and it, it become part of my day every day, seven days a week, um, because when you go in prison, it's like one long day, <laughs> so you do you, you you just you fall into a routine, and, and that's what got me through um, that that environment, and and after after the year of doing that, um, by the time I'd spent on remand, waiting to get sentenced. Um, they literally open up the door and they let me out into the street uh, at times worse than the man that was locked up. <laughs> I think that's is that quite that's quite a common occurrence, is it not? Oh yeah, like it, it, yeah, it, my, I, I I hated the system even more um, because I'd experienced it. And I, I remember when I was in there in, in prison, I used to wake up and I used to always say to myself every day, "This is not my life." these people have, like, kidnapped me and put me in it. And, like, obviously, the person I am today, I put myself in that situation. But, like, you you, you don't see it through that lens when you're in there. You see yourself as being held captive by the system. Like, they've, they've taken you off the streets, taken you away from your family, your friends, and they've dumped you in this place. Um, they're, trying to, they're trying to, like, you. Um, and you see yourself as a kind of at war with them. And, and I used to always remind myself every day, this is not my life. And, and I put a, a financial marker I used to think to myself for every year you've put me in there and taken off my life I want a million pounds when I get out and that's what motivated me through that sentence it did it did it was like they, they wouldn't I, I kept thinking to myself you, they will they will not break me they will not change me because again like the way I was brought up was people that went to prison that come out and did something else for their lives they were weak and they was the system had broken them so like I didn't see again because it's so perverse that world and the way you see life and the way you see people and the way you treat people, um, I didn't see it as like me me accept responsibility for my actions that I put myself in. There. It was all of my own doing. It was like me sort of me thinking that I was at war against the system, me me at war against the state, um, and and it and it and it really wasn't. So I mean, when when you was when you was growing up around around all these villains and around you know. Um, Someone like your stepdad as well. Was was it a common occurrence for people to to get nicked and to get banged up and then just come uh, out and then get nicked and get banged up and then come out and then do the same sort of thing all over again? To be honest with you, the sort of people that they weren't sort of when I say they were prolific offenders, they didn't they like they did when they went in they got mad they they never they just done massive sentences yeah. they didn't um, they didn't it wasn't they were getting nicked every other week it was like they would get nicked and then they would be gone for like 10, 15, 20 years. Like they was, they were the high stakes that these sort of men were playing with. Like they were playing when they got caught, they were getting 20 years in prison. They weren't yeah. messing around, but they didn't get caught obviously often. But when they did get caught, um, they, they, they went in and they didn't get out for years and years and years. But yeah, like when they would, these men would come out, obviously as I was growing up, they become kind of like your heroes. Like, and, and again, I feel embarrassed today. And I, I've said this many times before, like um, the guy that I eventually got arrested with years later, um, when, I, when I was a young kid and he came out of prison after serving 18 years, he was a bit of a hero in the criminal underworld. Like, he was prolific. He tried to escape from prison two times. Again, a very wealthy man, like a modern-day cowboy. And when he came out of prison when I was a little kid, at this point I had an awareness of what prison was and people going to prison and coming out. And he just came out after serving 18 years and, and he didn't care. Like, he, he, he just had no respect for the law or the system whatsoever. Um but he was my hero as a kid. Now, I, again, I look back at it now, I feel embarrassed by saying that, but again, it was so normal to me, um, being a little boy, that that was what life, that was what life is about. It was like, live, my mum used to say to me, like, you, you live in your life in the fast lane and eventually you'll crash it. She went, because you have to. Yeah. 
mm. you can't live like that every day yeah. and, 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 and survive it. And, and my mum was right at the time. I thought my mum didn't know what she was talking about, but it proved to be right. Years later, when, when I become that man that spends X amount of, like, decades sitting in a, in a prison cell, but you never think that's going to be you. You think other people are stupid and they get caught and you don't get caught. And, and, I, um, and I eventually did get caught again. So we, like, when, when, um, you know, when, when you was exercising in your cell and that was getting you through, uh, you know, being there 24-7, is that, did you, did you carry on doing a lot of sport when you came, like, for the, for the amount of time that you was out of prison? Did you do, any, did you do anything else at all? Or was it just pure? No. I, 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 when I come out, I, I kind of, um, uh, I, I was out for a couple of days and, like, I had found the police were basically following me around and I knew I would go back to prison because I knew they wanted to put me back in there. Yeah. Um, obviously, they were very desperate to get me in because they thought I'd got away with stuff years before. Um, so then I made the decision, I'd leave this country, which I did. I went out to the Netherlands and then I went from the Netherlands down to Spain and then when I was down there, um, I just got completely absorbed into that world of, like, well, a million miles an hour, like, going out partying, I was taking drugs, um, I doing physical activity wasn't really high on my list yeah. of stuff I was I was consumed by greed right because what happens it, it becomes intoxicating like I went down when I was in Spain for instance and you're with all these men that are like business people and people that are from the Middle East and they've got millions and millions of pounds and you're around them and you're out with them so you you want more and more money and I remember mate I used to get up in the morning and I used to open my eyes and my first thought was how can I make more money and it, and it, it, it intoxicated me it literally intoxicated me, but it wasn't, um, yeah, like being physically active just didn't, it wasn't something really that was an important part of my life, really. So at all. It, it had become quite an unhealthy obsession then with, the, with, being, with being successful with regards to money and power, I guess. Yeah, it, 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 yeah, it was. It was never about like. Um, it was never about power. It was always about the acquisition of money. Like I was never motivated by really by goods. Mm-hmm. Like I was never. It never like I wasn't one of them sort of people. that was ostentatious. I didn't. That didn't motivate me. What motivated me was I. I attributed like from a young kid. My stepdad used to say to me, "Do you think you're going to be a millionaire when you're 21 years old?" And I can't tell you how disappointed I was when I was in prison. And I turned 21 years old, and I was in prison, and I wasn't a millionaire um, because to me money was the equivalent of like an athlete wanting to win a gold medal so I thought by having X amount of millions by certain parts of my life that would define me as being successful so like when I was 21 I wanted to be a millionaire when I was 30 I wanted to have 20 million pounds like that was what motivated me mm. it was never really about money it was more about what money represented in the context of achievement <laughs> so it, was, it wasn't about me like getting loads of money and then going out and buying a million Rolexes and having a massive Sunseeker yacht moored off the south of France. That, it wasn't about that. It was me having goals and me wanting to tar- hit those targets. So you'd, uh, you'd, you'd hit like the party and lifestyle. You, you'd done all that. How did you end up back here, John? So I, I basically, I, I, was, I was living in Spain. Uh, I thought my life, I thought basically I thought I was probably going to see the rest of my life out in Europe anyway. I, I, I knew I, no, I, 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 I hated England. Uh, obviously, I had a very negative experience being in prison. I didn't want to ever come back. Um, and all, I had friends and family in Spain and Holland, so I, I thought this would be my life. But just I would live, live it in continental Europe. And then I come back here purely just for a, a, basically my friend's birthday party. And, um, and when I come back, 
I come back for that reason. I was I was only coming back for a week maximum, um, and I end up with a guy that was a guy that I knew when I was a little kid. The guy that come out of prison when I was a little kid after seven, eight years. He was my, one of my stepdad's best friends, and I went and met him, and um, we had a conversation, and he, he basically wanted to see if I wanted to go commit a crime with him, uh, an armed robbery. I said no at the beginning. Um, and then he sent me to tell me the sum of money, the greed overcome me again. I thought it'd be easy, I'll do it, leave the country, no one even know I've done it. And do you know what? It was the best decision I ever made in my life. Um, because when I said yes, what I didn't know was there was literally a hundred man police surveillance operation on him. They'd been watching him for months. Um, and, and I just walked into one of the biggest sort of police operations that the Met Police were running. And um, two days later, we were about to go and commit a robbery on a cash in transit van and the police are waiting in ambush and I get arrested and sort of this is yeah it, obviously it was a, it was a life changing moment um, I didn't really realise the, the course in which my life would end up taking at that moment I thought my life was absolutely obliterated because when I was being chased by the police I remember thinking to myself I'm not going back to prison because I remember um, I remember what was coming I, I knew I experienced it before it was all new to me but I knew I was going to go back to that segregation cell and I knew I was going to go back there for longer. And, and do you know what, mate? Like, I've never really spoken about it before, but when I was having that car chase, I can honestly remember I had a voice in my head saying, I'm not going back, I'm not going back. And I was fully prepared to sort of try to get away at any lengths where it even meant me like sort of dying. I, I, I did not want to go back to that environment. And But obviously, they did end up catching me. Um, I crashed the car, got out, ran off, but they ended up, up catching me around the... The sort of back of this housing state um, and yeah like, I, I, th- th- this time the game had like, sort of completely changed um, I mean I mean, you know look, looking back and, and and talking about it now I mean I, I could probably <clears throat> talk for me and Perry I've never obviously I've never experienced nothing like that I'm, I'm pretty sure you haven't either Perry you know what a car chase <laughs> yeah. no. but in, in anything I mean what an upbringing Jesus no it's mad and the thing is for me I think you know I mean we, we could probably do loads of podcasts with John I think I think like, it's such an intriguing story but I think it's such an inspiring good story as well and I think um, you know I mean I, I'm just sitting here listening to it I just think it's 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 such an engaging listen Mm. You know, and, I, and I'm listening here, and we're, we're, we've only kind of touched a small percentage because he, he can go on from here and, and continue to. I mean, I've listened to a lot of the story anyway, um, but this is why I find it so inspiring because I think the more people out there listen to what this lad's gone through, and and they and they and they engage with what what he's gone through, and the thing is, look, there's, there's too much. There is a lot of negativity. You know, you commit a crime. That doesn't mean your life's over, you know. If you're willing to basically make something good from the situation, and this is what he's done, and I think this is why for me it's very empowering what he's doing, and I think it's it's also for me encouraging that he's got a lot of support, and it encourages me that a lot of people are enthusiastic about the fact that he's going around trying to inspire the next generation to not get involved in any of this stuff, and he's the things that he's doing. To the to the to the kind of the wannabe criminals out there, if you like, I think he's touching home a lot more because of his age and because of how old he was when he done what he done, and he's also got the 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 heart and the desire to actually say to people, look, I am 
I've done what I've done. I've now made uh, um, a, something like a best of a bad situation. I'm making my life a lot better now. And I'm also, and I've done it by sport. Mm. And... You know, I, I will come on to it shortly, but I know I know John's passionate about becoming a professional triathlete, and this is one of the big things that he wants to do. You know, and I know he's very he's very inspired in his desire and aspiration to do that. He's so driven to do that, but the work that he's doing with you know MPs and politicians and and, and sending out the message that he's doing is it's the the for me what I see. And when I'm listening to him, the drive that he had um, as a robber or, or a criminal, that drive is now transferred into mm. basically going and doing the things for the good. So he's transferred that drive and desire into a different pocket. And that's why I think it's it's a beautiful thing, really, listening to him speak, because he's literally diversitized his kind of way of thinking. And role models, what he's saying is, is a key thing. That, that's that's quite important, Perry. What you've just touched on there, because I I think sometimes when you say to people about change, um, it isn't as dramatic as what most people think it actually is. Because, like I've said to you, like I said at the very beginning of this interview, I am who I am. But when I redirected how I am and how I saw the world into something else something that was destroying my life, those characteristics, when I put them into sport and what I'm doing today, they're massive attributes. Mm. So, and I believe everyone, everyone, everyone has talents and abilities and gifts. Um, when I was a little kid, for instance, my teachers used to say to me, I was really hyperactive, I used to talk a lot. They said, it will never get you anywhere. That is the biggest attribute I've got today as a person, that I'm able to stand up and talk to people yeah. and not shut up when I start. And I, I always say this to kids, We've all got abilities and talents, but it's about the direction and where you choose to put them. So, like, when I see kids that are in prison for selling drugs, they're entrepreneurs. They're business people. Mm. They, they understand. They get it. They mm. understand about mathematics. Mm. Like, but it's about redirecting those skills and giving those young people the opportunities to realise that, actually, you're no different to someone that works on the financial markets in the city. Mm. You've got the same characteristics. <laughs> that you see life. You see stuff the same. But it's the upbringing. It's the environment. And it's the lack of opportunity they get. Yeah. So... What I try to do and what I do today is I try to give those young people or help them, guide them, direct them to show them that actually it's possible. And and I would say of all the powerful moments I've had since I've been out of prison, I went into a young offenders institution and I went and gave a talk. And I remember this young man who was like 19 years old. I could tell when I was talking and there was a big group of them, it was about 25. And one of them was looking at me intently. And at the end, he put his hands up. And he pointed to all the prison officers and he said, these people don't get our lives. And he said, but you are the first person I've ever seen in my life that's been in here like us and come out and, and, and sort of that opened up his, heart, his, his eyes and his mindset to the fact that it's possible that he can come out of that environment and he mm. can be successful in doing something else with his life. And using the skills that he's actually got and putting them into something productive and positive uh, John, how old was you when you got put behind the door again? Um, I was 22. So I, I was 22 and I didn't get out until I was nearly 30 <laughs> the second time. So it was a lot, lot longer. Jesus. Yeah, and, and, was what, and was it the same thing that when when you got put in there? No. Was you, was you, was you under the same sort of influences 
um, you know, I just need to get through this. I need to do my time and get back out and just get back to normal day to day life. Yeah. Or it kind of like to be, yeah. To be honest with you, the second time I went in, it, it was so. When I went in the second time, basically, what ended up happening, because I'd been to prison um, for similar offences before, and because so because the police believed I had the, the money means, capability, and access to firearms, and, and I was determined to escape from lawful custody, they did something in the prison service. It's called your double category A level three prisoner. Mm-hmm. So I couldn't be kept in a normal population with normal prisoners, like, as per se. So when I got arrested and I went to prison, I went to Belmarsh, and they put me on something called HSU, which is a high-secure prison unit, and it's a prison within a prison in Belmarsh, and it was built in, like, 1990s for the IRA, and it was um, it was basically a, it was a high-security prison unit, and there was, like, eight of us on this wing. Um, there was me, um, a guy that was in there for a contract murder, and the 21-7 suicide bombers that tried to kill themselves on the tube and, and shake Abu Hamza, and we was on, I was on there for two and a half years. Um, I ended up going to, going to court. Um, I ended up getting two life sentences, for conspiracy to commit robbery um, and possession of firearms. So um, you, so you was on. So in within within Belmarsh, you was in a very high secure unit. Then yeah, I was. It, it, it's the most. It, it, to, to give you a reference, it's the most high secure prison installation in Western Europe. Jeez. So like there was out, 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 out of night, there was at that point there was ninety thousand men in prison in the United Kingdom, and out of the ninety thousand, there was twenty eight of us. That would deem to be such a high escape risk that we had to be segregated at the prison service, like at sort of the mainstream prison service, and put in this tiny little unit. <clears throat> so it was, it was there was very minute few of us um, in relation to the rest of the prison service. Um, and like I said, I, I was on there for two and a bit years. Go to court. Um, I got two life sentences. I was twenty. I was twenty four at that point. Um, and people often ask me, "What does it feel like to get life?" And, and to be honest with you, I never had no intentions to serve life. So when he gave it to me, I, I didn't have any respect for them whatsoever. So I just thought, there's no way I'm going to sit in here for like however long you think you're going to keep in here for. The first opportunity I get to get out of here, I'm, I'm going to take it. Yeah, I went, I went up, I got transferred to a um, to a prison in Yorkshire called Full Sutton. Right. Which was a maximum security prison. And, and that was then my stage of being in a convicted sort of... Uh, in a convicted fashion, because up to that point I'd been remanded, and now I was in a, in a and I, I had no sort of intentions to change again. So you, I mean, you've been given two life sentences. I mean, what, what on earth do you do to pass the time while you're <clears throat> while you're locked up then? So, so again, the, the coping strategy, which he did from the very day I went back into that unit, I started doing. I was doing the cell circuits every day. Um, I was reading books. Um, I was keeping myself connected to the real world, I was listening to the radio, I was reading newspapers, um, I didn't want to be institutionalised, but everything was geared up, my mindset was geared up to the first opportunity I had to get out of that environment, I would take it and go. Um, but that was how I was dealing with coping with the sentence, I was just exercising um, and, and educating myself again. I've got to say, I think so strong-willed and strong-minded, uh, you know, I don't think there's many people, I mean, I, I haven't met many people that have been... Uh, like dealt out life sentences like that anyway, and and how they would cope with it. You you must be so mentally strong. It's, it's it's a weird again, Mark. It's quite a weird one because a lot of this stems from my upbringing. Like when with my stepdad, it was that never showing weakness. It was never yeah. showing emotion. Um, they were very hard masculine men. So like when I went into that environment, it was like putting that 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 steel exterior up of defiance and hate. 
So that was like the motivation. It was that hatred towards the system and what it represented. So like when when I went in there, it was like me demonstrating my strength to them. Mm. It was like they can't break me. Um, and and I, and I feel like because the, the, again, I, I always believe in life. You can't blame everyone for the bad if you don't blame them for the good. Yeah. And my step my stepdad taught me a lot of things in my life where actually as a person I am today. Um, they they helped me. Even a lot of the stuff was very negative, and it and it, and it was detrimental to my life. Um, but he, he always taught me to be sort of like respectful and um, being able to converse with different groups of people. Like when I was a little kid, he always used to say to me, "We don't just hang around with criminals. Don't hang around with thugs. Don't hang around with people that want to be gangsters. Make sure." And he used to take me out and when, when he would go for lunches with people that were solicitors and accountants and barristers. All right. So um, I mean, John, you, you've got the most incredible story ever um, and we're using this as a two-part uh, podcast and you know part one has just been mind-blowing for me i don't know about you Pez. um mate i knew this was going to be i've yeah. been i've been trying to get john on for weeks I know you have. but he's so he's such a busy guy yeah um he's just but what he's doing is amazing you know and i, I, I always knew this was going to be a special podcast and and what you have done and what you are doing and turning your life around like you have john is we're going to find that out in the second part anyway but my god you are a true inspiration to i think most young people out there and definitely to me as well you know i i, I feel that there's always something that people can do better with their lives and you know we all make mistakes we all do silly things but you can come out the other end shining can't you yeah mate totally mate and and again that sport sport well <laughs> when when you when when, you, when people use the context of saying sport changed my life like sport literally did save my life like because without it I yeah. would have ended up dead and, and you know and you know what I've got I mean I've got goosebumps Shut sitting up. here listening to it even even down to stuff like depression, even stuff down to, you know, making silly decisions that, that some of us may have made or anything like that, of how much sport can save your life. You know, I've got I've got a really good friend I've got a really good friend of mine who nearly ended his life in two thousand and fifteen. He found triathlon and he's just you know, he's changed his life around and now he's doing big campaigns for men's mental health and everything just because of triathlon. You know, but I work a lot in boxing and even with the boxing how depressed some people can be before they start training and before they jump in the ring and, and everything and just how their life turns around it just it blows my mind it really does how powerful sport can be oh mate it's, 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 mate, it's one of the most powerful uniting tools that there is in the world yeah. it unites people in a way politicians can't do governments people can't like business can't do like it's such a unite because it sees no race it sees no religion it sees yeah. nothing it literally what you put in is what you get back, yeah. and and it can unite people. You only have to. You, you only. Do you know what? I always use the analogy when you looked at the FIFA World Cup. Like for that moment in time, when England were in the World Cup, no, even the most hardcore right wing thinking human being in Britain, or Brit- in England, would still cheer Raheem Sterling scoring a goal. Because yeah. for that moment, they don't see what their race is. If we could just, if we could just encapsulate that, put it in a can, and then sell that's, it, like it, it would be incredible, wouldn't it? That's what right, mate. The that's right. It is. It is. So, John, we're going to look forward to speaking to you again and get and get the rest of your journey and get and get what's happened to you since since you come out of uh, of being in prison and, and and what good and everything that you've done. So. Uh, so, mate, we, we look forward to speaking to you again. Yeah, I look, for, really I look forward to speaking to you again as well, mate. All right, John.
Take care of yourselves, mate. Cheers. 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 Good job, mate. Thanks for your time, John. You, you take it easy, buddy. Thanks, mate.